Okay. All right, let's do let's this. Fire up the Yasha Monk take machine. Authoritarian takeover. It's good that we have common authoritarian policies. Okay, the Yasha the Yasha machine's I'm, working. I'm, seems like I'm seeing here that Joe Jorgensen has won the presidency <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> happened the thing we've all been you know waiting for <laughs> the election happened mm-hmm. what's up we're back should i just dive right in and do an intro or do we want to do an opener yeah sure let's just should. let's just do it welcome to the death panel uh i guess i should say welcome to the 200th episode of Woo! death panel yeah Woo. more kind than 200 of, if right. you count medicare for all week services yeah. and stuff but whatever who's kind counting? Of, but we it's kind don't. of funny timing i'm not counting as we count <laughs> in our counting system yeah. that's right stop the count this is every episode after this will be 200 <laughs> episode 200 from now on every episode okay no more that. counting i'm okay with that anyways to uh to help keep the content coming Please support us on Patreon for access to the second weekly episode of Death Panel, um, which comes out on Mondays. This is the free one. So if you want access to the bonus one and all of our back content, patreon.com slash death panel pod. I mean, if you if you like the show and you want to support us another way, also feel free to leave us a rating review or share links to the show from your favorite podcast player because it helps people find us and, Mm -hmm. you know boosts the content so to speak so i guess we should say for context um because things are still obviously coming in we're we're recording this still in that kind of sweet spot between when uh it's still incredibly indeterminate and when we might actually (laughs) know something that being said obviously you know this is gonna be this has the potential to drag on for quite some time there's like uh, you know con- like i feel like every hour or whatever you get a new thing about some possibly specious legal challenge that the trump team is doing um and there is still as we're recording this the possibility that it could come down to a 269 269 <laughs> uh electoral college tie right which um that's adorable sounds about like i think if uh, if biden wins then 2020 will have peaked at Trump getting the coronavirus, but I think that the only way it could outdo itself is that tie, which or, is again the peak, yeah, unlikely. The peak will have an asterisk, and the asterisk would be the two sixty nine. What would what would getting two sixty nine? What 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 sexual position is that? That sexual position is the position where Biden uh, wins Georgia <laughs> and Trump wins everything else. Uh, basically, that that remains on the board. But yeah, but we're in this we're in this. Yeah, we're in this weird space where every time you turn on any sort of media, there is a a bizarre thing that occurs, which is I kept comparing it to um, school lunch. But like, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the situation where it's like lunch, lunchtime comes around, you're very hungry, but the only things that are on offer are abjectly terrible. Okay. <laughs> yeah. and, but nevertheless, you are hungry and you will eat them. <laughs> Uh, and you, you have no choice, but it's, yeah, every time you turn on, uh, media now, it's like, 
oh, okay, I want some sort of analysis, but no, this is just going to be a rehashing of, uh, well, we don't know. And we're going to get a professor to come on and say, uh, well, we're not quite sure. And it'll be very interesting to see what happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> Welcome to the death panel where we eat shit for an hour. <laughs> right. And where where uh, Phil has been that professor for, I think, the last, what, 48 plus hours at this point just yeah like, luckily i haven't had to be like on te- television like that that long but yeah, yeah for, for a while there totally um, it was it was the the food that they had for us was panera and i was like you know what this is the panera bread election yeah <laughs> I think. yeah i mean that said i think that this moment of indeterminacy is kind of like the best moment we could you know have to weigh in on mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. on uh i think in part because like elections have and we've been you know we've been kind of talking privately about this off and on uh since uh since the like results started to come in and we tried to figure out like how we're gonna how we're gonna tackle this exactly and i think that you know elections tend to have this result like one of the things we've been talking about is the elections tend to have this result of like the moment that all the results are kind of known uh there become this like cavalcade of either people saying that like this has proved their priors or mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Or this has proved their priors and the priors that they say that have been proved are slightly different from what they were actually saying. <laughs> um, or they sort of like recalibrate and they try to you begin to sort of see how the how the narrative sorting is going to happen Listen, in America. Priors are like water. It's just like steady flow. Right. You know, it's 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 nothing tangible. It is what it is at any given moment. Right. But, yeah. But like yeah. Phil, Phil had a great example yesterday, which was like, um, you know, you would you would not have um, like the hillbilly elegies of the world without the Trump victory in 2016, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. Right? Had, mm-hmm. had Hillary Clinton eked out 20,000 more votes in Wisconsin or something like that, there would have been no, I mean, I can imagine publishers across the, uh, across the New York publishing scape would have just been, you know, crying in their, uh, Earl Grey of just like, <laughs> you know, we won't be able to publish JD or like, we'll publish JD Vance, but like, it won't get, it won't be in airports everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would say, yeah, elections, oh. I, w- I would say that they have a Rashomon effect, but at least Rashomon's entertaining and it's a good story. But like, <laughs> yeah, elections is just like any number. And I guess, I guess, you know, like COVID-19 did this too, but it's like, okay, here's this one thing that I care about or I think is important. And, and that is going to be the thing that ex- like explains everything. Mm-hmm. And the thing is like the, like the market for these things does not discriminate. It just wants more things to like stuff in the like fruitcake of like election takes It just, and then bake it and then you eat it and then just have indigestion constantly. <laughs> uh, How are we back to eating shit? How did this happen? <laughs> there, there's, you know, there's so much that's like up in the air, but in a lot of ways, like regardless of the outcome, that's not really going to change the context of this conversation, mm-hmm. which I think is important to get out of the way. You know, like the, you know, there's a lot of narratives that you can sort of encounter right now. There's so many takes, but ultimately like, I think what's really kind of important is that we either way are looking at a very, very serious battle against austerity for the next four years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With the uh, person that may have just been elected being on the forefront of battling in favor of austerity, I think. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I look, we're, we're, we're not in the game of like predictions, but I think it's, it's fair to say, you know, Democrats did not, do what they needed to do 
either <laughs> in Congress or in state legislatures to have any sort of capacity to enact. I mean, I'm not even talking about enacting like a sort of Bernie Sanders light program, but like <laughs> anything that might be construed as having a family resemblance to a Democratic Party program. I mean, they're not right. going to be able to do which, that. Which, to be fair, we were always pretty skeptical they actually wanted to or, or would have enacted in any case. But now, you know, not only do they have an excuse not to, but they have no ability to enact well, anything well, right. like that. And, and the question, I think, right now, like one question is like the way that this like so we've said that like election has like a, a rashomon effect and like anyone can take anything they can from it but the, the the problem with that in a sense is that the lessons that democrats will allow themselves to draw from this will be uh <laughs> largely speaking the the wrong uh lessons <laughs> right and so like rather than try to talk about like will they won't they learn like okay it's obvious they won't right uh, but that's not really the right uh, question and it's not really the right question to ask oh why didn't democrats pull this out um and we'll sort of get to uh, maybe some explanations of that but i think the the better way of thinking about this is like why don't elections produce representative government like <laughs> 72 percent of people want medicare for all right uh you have like vast majorities and if you look actually at the um like the ballot questions in some states like Florida overwhelmingly voted to like increase minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at like past elections uh, where in, in states they like, you know, huge support for like expanding Medicaid, even like deeply Republican uh, places like Idaho, um, Kansas. Right. Uh, and the, you know, the question is like, what is going wrong such that when you have these elections for, for office, they don't produce representative government. Right. Uh, and I, I think that we have to like deal with that if we're like, if we're going to get to understanding any of the anxiety that people feel about what this election like portends. Right. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I think, you know, it, it's, we're in a position right now where you've got so many other things to focus on that it's like actually kind of like difficult for a lot of people, or I guess it's not like super advantageous for like pundits and media personalities to actually focus on that question right now. Well, or even Democrats themselves, because so, so much of the, you, you never see, I think it, it's telling, for example, that in, even in the run up to the election, when it was like known, so it, it was like so well known how, uh, you know, like a variety of like voter suppression tactics were going to be used. Many of them have become, you know, many vote, like voter suppression is sort of like the institutional law of the land in the United States to begin with in a variety of different ways. And in, you know, and obviously varying uh, state to state. But you, I think it's very telling that, you know, the, the Biden campaign or even just people running for uh, even like a lot of people like running for Congress, which like. You know, it seems like clearly, um, you know, as opposed to the the blue wave that a lot of people imagined, like signs not pointing to (laughs) signs not pointing to good, I guess. It's instead Uh, of a instead of a tidal wave, it's just a gentle, steady leak that's sort of not going over the water table, but just filling in exactly the bare minimum volume that it could have. It's the moment where the tide is maybe up, but it's then receding still, (laughs) clawing back from the anyway, whatever. It's like when you pull the plug in the bathtub, but your your drain is so clogged by hair that nothing changes. The the, 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 (laughs) 
<laughs> point being, it's telling that Democrats, for example, have not uh, adopted anything like a universal automatic enrollment. We don't have uh, like there are, there are a number of other like things that you could do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think that like there are two thoughts on that. Like one is that, you know, Democrats did at the beginning of the last session of Congress make H.R. 1 this big mm-hmm. pro voter rights restoration, um, you know, post Shelby County, uh, post the Shelby County case. And, you know, that did include, you know, a pretty broad package of, uh, you know, voter uh, sort of enhancement reforms. But, you know, I think the thing for me is that like, okay, that didn't pass. You didn't get this. You don't have the Senate. Right. And so, you know, that there are going to be these structural impediments to voting for a lot of people. And what is it that gets people over the hump uh, to actually get to the ballot box if they're feeling particularly demobilized, if they're not feeling a huge, um, you know, sense of like, connection to to the issues in the race, uh, or if if you know th- the policies that have affected them have just so uh, you know left them with, with very, very little, right. uh, that they don't actually feel much of a, an investment in, you know, or, or trust in the idea that their, their sort of civic participation, uh, matters. And like, the answer is you have to give them something to vote for. <laughs> yeah. You have to, especially in the midst of like this, like an economic crisis, a pandemic, like you have to give them some sort of collective good that maybe, uh, would be possible, uh, to win if, if you're elected. And I think that to me, the most striking thing is like in a city like Milwaukee, where turnout in 2016 was really low relative to past elections, turnout in 2020 didn't really improve over it at all. Yeah. It's basically flat. Mm-hmm. Um, by contrast, if you look at a, a county like Dane County, which is where Madison is, mm-hmm. you had a huge surge in turnout, but Dane County is far more affluent, far more white. Um, you know, it is, it has much, many more of the characteristics of the appeal that Democrats were going for in this election. And Milwaukee County is sort of, to me, a hallmark of what Democrats did not do, uh, which is bring people who had not necessarily, um, voted before into, into the fold. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, or give them, or give them, you know, a, a reason to, to, forego wages for an entire day to wait in line right like it's it's not rational to to make that decision if you don't think that uh like you're gonna get anything out of it i mean there's there's a i feel like there's a narrative that that i've been particularly frustrated by in the past couple days which is that this somehow will trigger unprecedented um, reevaluations from the democratic camp or like soul searching in some capacity. What, what, what is interesting to me though, is that you have, you have this, um, obviously like you have this sort of like idea that there, there could be some sort of sea change and I, I feel like, or some reckoning or reevaluation or whatever. And I think often like that sort of, that sort of wishful thinking, is incredibly destructive in and of itself because it kind of effectively just gives people an out to not push to have some of these people replaced and out of their jobs because the idea that there's this constant possibility of redemption for the Democratic Party at this point, that they could somehow live up to the idea that, that they, you know, project 
right? Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, disincentivize that disincentivizes actually like removing a lot of them from office often. This is actually a really, really good point, which is that what are uh, elections and why are they supposed to work uh, (laughs) in producing like anything like democracy, right? They're, they're an instrument. Like I think they're often uh, in the way that people kind of linguistically construct elections. They're often referred to as synonymous uh, with democracy or like Mm -hmm. somebody will like look at a, you know, uh, polling place and say, well, look, it's democracy in action. Right. Um, yeah. But like, that's, that's a really, I think it's a synecdoche that like is, uh, really like harmful because it's not democracy in action. It's an instrumentality of democracy, right? It's mm-hmm. like one mechanism by which we try to do what the people or whatever want. Um, but the, the logic by which elections produce representative government is like very contingent. So it assumes that when uh, elected officials face losses, that that is actually a penalty that, that, that causes them in some way to maybe reevaluate uh, <laughs> right. their, their positions in light of what the people uh, in scare quotes have said. Um, Another possibility is like when an election is so clearly illegitimate or does not produce uh, representative government, either because it is actually um, uh, rigged uh, <laughs> or because, you know, and this is like I feel like a real normie saying this, but like, you know, uh, <laughs> as Madison said, like you know, obtaining <laughs> obtaining the suffrages and then betraying. Uh, the people, (laughs) either of those things could be illegitimate government and the election itself is never intended to be the mechanism by which the election is judged, right? You can't (laughs) election yourself out of a uh, rigged system. I mean, that's, that's the sort of the John Roberts argument against like why the court couldn't deal with uh, gerrymandering, which is like, well, you know, voters can like vote themselves out. It's like, well, actually not in fact. <laughs> um, but I think, but I think that's sort of the, the problem here is that no one will learn anything and nothing will change as the result of elections uh, alone. And it has never been that way. It always takes some sort of threat that exists outside of the electoral arena, you know, usually the threat of like massive disruption of the Mm -hmm. economy or of society in some way that makes elections, um, valuable as a, as a democratic instrumentality in, in part because they always exist in the shadow of something else people could do if their wishes are not honored. And the problem now is that like, so many mechanisms by which people could make their votes binding uh, or at the very least Mm -hmm. make them appealing as an alternative to some greater disruption that could occur. So many of those other outside options don't seem to exist. Unionization is at an all time low. Um, The sort of the ability to like bring people out in massive numbers is, you know, still there. But of course you have a really, really, I mean, compared to when the labor movement was operating, even in the late 19th and early 20th century, the the repressive capacity of the state is far more powerful now. Um, So a lot of the, I mean, mechanisms by which you make an election democratic are just seem to be 
off the table. And I think if, if we're going to have like good elections in the future, which I do think is important, like I'm not uh, the kind of person like that discounts them. I think they are important, but they're important mainly because these other outside options exist. Right. Such a good point. Phil. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to sort of, you know, re- like repeat elements of that over and over again, because I think there is this huge countervailing um, narrative that is like kind of endemic to liberal politics that is not that is the the absolute re- reverse of that um, in in a couple of ways. One is that, for example, elections are extremely important because there are alternatives to because mm-hmm. uh, there are alternatives to how power is uh, taken or wielded, and we've we've talked quite a bit about those. Um, but but like the the corollary in like liberal politics is um, well, those other options don't exist to the extent that they <laughs> exist. They are civil peaceful protest where (laughs) nothing can get broken and you can't touch the cops and you cannot damage anything and you know you must you can stand there and you can like make your uh you stand there like silently or whatever maybe maybe do a little chant or something and you see how well that worked out during the entirety of like the bush era right i mean like i went to those fucking protests like everyone was you know, standing on the, uh, standing on like the, like out on the DC mall, uh, you know, running around and like chanting and holding signs and shit. And, you know, we're still in those (laughs) fucking wars. So, um, but beyond, beyond that, I think, you know, to back, back to the sort of the, the, the relevant, uh, you know, immediate moment of the election. I think this is really well, the other side of it about like how, um, how like the, the question of, Oh, but the, the party will sort of respond. The party has heard the people and will respond <laughs> accordingly. Right. I think it's really, but in a way they are right. Well, like they've heard nothing and they're like, okay, cool. Yep. We're just, uh, we're gonna keep well, doing our thing. Right. I mean, and I think, right. And I think exactly that is very well borne out in this, um, this, uh, John Favreau tweet, one of the pod save America guys, uh, which, you know, I know he's not an official, I know he's not like, you know, an elected official or anything, uh, but he is obviously like a total like tool? party hack. Yeah. A complete party <laughs> tool. Basically. Um, you know, pod save America is basically like a media organ of the democratic party, except for it exists as like for profit, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, you it's, know, the for pro- it's the for-profit arm of the DNC. Yeah, right? but but basically, like, so he had this, uh, like, I think what was it, it was the morning after the election or something, or like that late that night. Um, he had this like two-part tweet. Um, one half of which the the less <laughs> the less charitable half uh, has been deleted uh, now, but I screen capped it, and it's and it's been and it's been going around like quite a lot, which is why he deleted it. But um, you know, the first part is. Um, like Donald Trump won the quote Donald Trump won the presidency by less than 80,000 votes not a single member of his party reflected on anything and they acted like they were given an enormous mandate for 4 years do we have problems as in the democratic party this is the second part of the tweet now do we the democratic party have problems of course we do let's figure them out together in private now uh, a couple things one uh, hilarious because this whole thing of like oh the the republicans did not question how they gained this power the republicans did not question the trump era the republicans did not do some sort of uh you know uh election post-mortem to see how they got trump pretty ironic considering that like one uh the democratic party itself did not do a 2016 Mm post-mortem which is pretty funny um two and and like two 
like okay sure the yeah the means by which they uh did this were like extremely racist and like ugly but you think that it matters to the grand old party how they get there if they secured the result that allowed them to like get a huge like basically like judicial stranglehold for right. you know the foreseeable future until people get their shit together you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and then the other thing is just like you know obviously the okay we have our we have our problems let's figure them out in private it's like no that's not how fucking change works that's not how any of this shit works like if you if the vessel of the democratic party is going to be any sort of like change agent or whatever which i think was the theory of the case for like the bernie sanders people and for and is for a lot of dsa people or whatever for like you know uh Mm -hmm. the democratic socialist path um like if that's your fucking theory of the case like these people are not at the table. Like John Favreau is not at the table, right? Mm-hmm. right? John Favreau and his ilk are fucking excluded. Right. You know but what I they mean? would have to be. But yeah. that's yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. But I, I think this but I think this belies the entire premise, right? Of the of this like this whole this whole thing that we're yeah. talking about basically of like the Democratic Party will have a change of heart, et cetera. Right. I mean, I, I think they see this. Uh, people like John Favreau, and and I think that extends to sort of a lot of the people who were involved in the Obama administration, who have like entered the media sphere after their tenure in um, federal government, has been the idea that you know civil disobedience is only um, important or effective insofar as it can, as part of an elaborate branding exercise, demonstrate backup for democratic mainstream policies. And they don't really have any interest in being challenged publicly because there's this sort of like Red Rover idea of like, we can't not link arms, that dissent, that, you know, discussion, that disagreement fundamentally is not part of the conversation because it will undermine our ability to win. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, you know, it's ridiculous. Returning to normalcy, normality, respectability, and some, you know, semblance of like the illusion that we used to live under, you know? You know, I, I think the one big problem here is that the, like the question is like, okay, what is a party? What is like the Democratic Party? And it's many different things. But among other things, it's a lot of professionals who are, uh, you know, see politics in a very particular way. And I'm not even talking about like ideology. I'm talking about what their goals are in terms Mm -hmm. of their job. And, And like one thing that I think, you know, you could see coming out of this election is that like it they see it as part of their job to win a. Uh, bare majority in a certain number of districts, even at the presidential level to like win a popular vote uh, majority. And they have a series of like targets and, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of like proven, you know, evidence based like tactics to like win a, <laughs> these certain like slivers of the electorate um, yeah. to produce a particular kind of outcome. Pathways to victory. Right. But it has (laughs) never been the case that if you want to meaningfully change the direction of governance or policy in a country, especially a country which has effectively counter majoritarian institutions that require Mm -hmm. more than a bare majority to 
do anything, right? Um, it has never been enough to just eke out a victory. You need really an interregional coalition of uh, people, and you also need effectively some outside uh, force that's pushing in between elections uh, for the gains that it seeks. And in the absence of that, you're just winning elections. And then what you're doing is uh, sort of managing your coalition with various sort of small benefits that they can take home, put in their annual organizational reports that they got a certain <laughs> number of things. And then and yeah. that's the sort of machine um, that's produced. But ultimately, over time, that might work uh, for a while, even if you do have like a big sort of interregional coalition. But at some time, that logic runs itself out. It exhausts itself. And what you're left with is an incredibly divided um, internally. I'm not even talking, I'm not talking like the stupid, like, oh, we're so divided as a country uh, metaphor. But like the internally, you have a, a, basically a very disaffiliated s- set of clientele groups have nothing, don't really see themselves as having linked interests or something in common other than the Democrats getting reelected. And mm-hmm. you get a kind of living death in terms of mm-hmm. your, your policy goals yeah. uh, or what you purport your policy goals to be. And, and certainly you don't change the understanding of what government uh, is supposed to be about. I mean, essentially, I think some of the distrust in government that you see uh, on the right, uh, and on the left, uh, is exists for a very good reason, which is that like the rights theory of government is, you know, government is essentially, well, their public theory of government is the government is bad. It is paternalistic, et cetera. Really their private theory is like, it's the tool by which we can, you know, construct monopolies and right. disempower labor. Um, but like the Democrats theory of government is, I think, functionally it is a mechanism for delivering benefits to slices of clientele groups that will help them win a bare majority in elections. And that is not a public theory of government that will work (laughs) uh, to generate any sort of, um, uh, you know, long coalition. And I think it's not necessarily that I even think that Democrats will or could produce that kind of, uh, government. I think that like in the absence of some broad, um, outside, uh, element, there's going to be, there's no motivation for them to do that at all. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. no motivation to have a public theory of government. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is one of the main, like the, the sort of transactional and, uh, like targeted hyper specific and very, you know, like whether it's, uh, industry or like a tiny like tiny little sliver splinter group issue like th- like the the type of excel spreadsheet cobbling coalition building that they do at the democratic party as opposed to like any kind of like uh you know sol- like solidaristic approach which you know obviously i don't don't ever expect the democratic party as like an organ to do but i'm just saying you know as you know in terms of like the the different view towards politics i think this is one of the reasons why um you know why like democrats underestimated uh trump as like a cultural and political force in mm-hmm. a way not mm-hmm. because uh, not because i'm not saying anything that like i'm obviously not trying to imply that like trump be- breeds any kind of like solidarity or whatever but i am i am saying that like 
the the type of political agitation and narrative mm-hmm. that uh, they built and the cultural the like cultural force that he became basically you know I, I think was like too easily laughed off by that type of evidence based will cobble together the electorate um, in in like this way or that way mm-hmm. um, approach uh, you know the same kind of approach that's that uh, made people say in 2016 that it was going to be like demographically impossible for Democrats to lose control of the White House in the foreseeable future <laughs> mm-hmm. right like the um, and, and yet I they think, found a way well yeah and I mean and I think it's to me it, it's how to put it I, like the 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 thing that proves this to me is that from from start to finish, basically, it was like, like remember all those polls from like before the primary even started that were like generic Democrat like beats Trump right. or whatever, mm-hmm. like, you know, vanilla it's, ice it's, cream wins in landslide. Well, it literally the Biden campaign feels like they basically saw that and were like, you're on. I'll take mm-hmm. that bet because, <laughs> you know, it is like if, if Biden wins, it will literally be like, congratulations, like open bracket, close bracket, like generic Democrat has like won the White House. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Not which is not even to say that they're going to do generic Democrat things. I think there's a good case to say that probably the the way that they won the coalition that they'll put together within like uh like I mean, fucking Cindy McCain's on the transition team, right? Yeah. Like this is not going to go well. This is going to be. <laughs> I think. I think we can look forward to like a George H. W. Bush style presidency. I mean, probably. As, as we were talking about, like you know, weeks ago when this like kind of was like leaked, like I am really unhappy with the people who are on the HHS shortlist. Just to like as a starting point, you know, I I for think Biden. for Biden, you know, we can expect um, some equal horrors to what we're seeing with SEMA with his people mm-hmm. in HHS. Uh, what we're seeing with Azar, who is like a fucking ghoul right like we you know Seema and Azar are awful horrible people yet I am not seeing anyone uh being floated on the democratic side who's also not going to like who's going to do anything to stop the like further privatization of Medicare I mean and Medicaid it's it's Oh, it's so frustrating. Basically, folks, the death panel is going absolutely nowhere. Obviously, that was like pretty obvious already. But right. like, yeah, we yeah, can, there's can you there, imagine, there is going to be a whole imagine, fresh set of horror. Can you imagine an outcome, though, where we were like, oh, my God, everything's fixed. All right. Well, we're packing it in. No, Later, I guys. Can't. I'm just, I'm just joking, I mean, but. we will be looking at austerity. We will be looking at the prioritization and perpetuation of racial capitalism. We're mm-hmm. going to be looking at white supremacist policies. We're going to be looking at, you know, attempts to appropriate activist language in order to probably funnel more money to police at the end of the day. I mean, like, let's be real. Right. We are going to be seeing some, you know, I'm sure incredible increases in the fracturing of like of privatized health care even. I mean, Mm -hmm. oh, it's this whole this whole idea of like, oh, we've got to build this coalition in order to like what just hold power and and hand things off to like individual you know constituencies it's it's absolutely um to to borrow a phrase from eugenics it's moronic and three generations of um <laughs> useless democrats is too many <laughs> well well and the other thing is that we we are you know sort of a lot of people's political energy and and energy like that they would spend towards like organizing and mobilizing are have been diverted towards like this big melodrama for the last 
fucking year and a half. And like now that that's kind of over, there's I see a possibility for like a lot of like political energy to shift uh, back towards projects more that, that that have the possibility to be more fruitful. In, a, in a lot of ways, we've also just sort of like done this uh, demonstration for the past couple of years of like, well, if the goal is only to just win the seats, right, then right. what happens? So I think it's it's time to lose a bunch of seats. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think at this time, like it's it's a lot harder to make the argument that moving forward that the sort of like baseline strategy needs to be winning seats. I think it's it's a much easier sell to say, you know what, like it's not about electoralism as a as an endpoint. It is about how does electoralism factor into what results in the like public policy which is enacted, right? Because mm-hmm. it's the policy that's important. It is like that structure that is important. It is the, you know, staffers in the institutions, it's the support and the funding that we have for public health. And ultimately, like rather than focus on piecemeal winning three seats here, four seats there, the real project to me is like, okay, how do we fundamentally reframe this in a in a way that no longer is a bean counting prioritized um process right that like give people the space to not be thinking about this as like a a like march madness bracket right exactly oh exactly 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 like the um the problem here is not that you know at some point you don't want to have people in office to do uh to like put the policies forward to like put the bills in the hopper and and so on like the Mm -hmm. the whole like false uh, antipathy between like electoralism and everything else. So it feels like a very four years ago kind of um, set of arguments to have. But I think the issue for me is, is that like, what exactly does politics consist of and under what conditions would elections produce any sort of uh, effective learning about what, what most people's preferences in fact are. And I don't think because elections are like, especially when they're close like this, mm-hmm. uh, and, and even when, frankly, like even when they're not that close, so much, so many different kinds of sense can be made out of them. You can interpret an election to have meant anything. Right. right. And, um, so they're not the way, I don't think that they're the way that, uh, parties or anyone else really learns. I, I don't think that they're really the, um, you know, unconditionally the way that, um, societies change, they can be a fulcrum, but only when there are other, uh, external, uh, uh, things sort of surrounding them that actually make them the alternative to some greater kind of disruption. And I think that the, like what has the, the site that has been lost, um, is that the idea that what we should be fighting for is, in fact, a different arena in which to, um, have these, have these issues sort of meted out. I mean, that's why I find the the results of like ballot initiatives, you know, with the exception of like prop 22 in California, which we yeah, can like, talk that. about if you want I think to, we should talk about but, that. Yeah. 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 Point. We should, but, but like, but for the most part, when you put some of these issues like on the ballot directly in front of people, um, they make what I would regard to be you know, good decisions that are in their self-interest. Um, and you know, the, the problem for me is that now we've just been, we're like so caught up in the idea that like, Oh, what we really have to do is elect candidates to, to do that. But 
we think we need to be having referenda on like what mm-hmm. the, the the nature of state the rights that we have in state constitutions should be mm-hmm. uh, right. or what the frankly what should be part of the um uh, bill of rights like what we have a right to uh, mm-hmm. positively speaking these are things that you know we used frankly used to do a lot more if you think like the income tax is the result <laughs> of a sort of decades long uh, social movement that resulted in a constitutional amendment. Um, these, these are not the kind of fights that, uh, we're having, uh, I think in part because of the incentive structure and the professionalization of politics, which say that what's really important is winning the election next year than mm-hmm. winning something that will actually secure justice for future generations. And that you might not see the, you know, the mountaintop, uh, but, but is ultimately the right thing to be doing. Right. And I think right. that, that professionalization process just bleeds out any of the actual sort of vocation, um, that people might feel to, uh, action in the political arena, which is also, why I think it's so important, you know, obviously, but why, you know, it, it deserves to be said that like, why it's so important to like continue, any form of uh, protest, uprising, unrest, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, that can that that can like meaningfully demonstrate, as, as you kind of mentioned before, Phil, like meaningfully de- demonstrate these demands from uh, like from outside the mm-hmm. political circle, because like you know, at the end of the day, even you know, even within the the left, and maybe this is why it's worth at least bringing up the like electoralism question that B was saying before, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like even among the left, I think that there is like the sort of the election comes and goes, and there is sort of a, for some a demobilizing like factor there, and in part that's because that is you know again because that like theory of power and and power change or whatever is so uh, foregrounded in American culture and American politics, right? I think that it is. Let me put it this way, like. For for example, very easy example, you know, mobilization around Medicare for all, we may not expect like, I obviously don't expect like a Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, like presidency to yield anything in like the advancement of Medicare for all. However, it is basic, it is, you know, it demonstrates a significant material need that needs to be socialized overall, Mm -hmm. like the Mm -hmm. health needs to be decommodified full stop. And you know, that can't be, that can't be a fight. And I got in a fight with a lot of, uh, Bernie people at the start of this cycle over this actually, but like, um, and, and, you know, I was, I was very happy that like the, uh, Bernie campaign, like we were all very happy that the Bernie campaign was like, so foregrounding Medicare for all specifically, and especially with long-term care, which was like a key to a lot of people actually supporting it. And I think a lot of people, you know, and shout out to Jaya Falls office for leading the way and putting the pressure there. But my point is like, um, you know, I got in like a fight with a lot of people over this, which was that like a lot of the Medicare for all discussion, uh, you know, in the run up to the primary, for example, was focused on uh, like the way to fight for Medicare for all is to like fight for Bernie. No, it's <laughs> not like the the point was always, you know, as as friend of the show, Tim Faust uh, pointed out, like elect him so we can yell at him. Right. He's the only <laughs> one that we, we thought we like would probably listen if we yelled a lot. Um whether like whether that but that like that doesn't change the fundamental thing of like there needs to be there like needs to be sustained agitation for these things, no matter where we are in a fucking electoral cycle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like at the end of the day, it doesn't fucking matter. 
Right. right. No, exactly. And and if you just like take this, take a moment to yourself every day to like to sit and think for a second and like reorient where your priorities are and, and like try and force yourself to think past the bean counting. Right. Like, mm-hmm. OK, what if the fundamental underlying goal is like health and survival? Right. How do we accomplish that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's the problem I have with the idea that we're going to, I mean, yeah, of course the electoral college is completely bunk and we need to like get rid of it. But like what motivation are people going to have to do that? We're like right. people don't vote on those things. Right. I mean, really it's, it's not the kind of thing that you put in front of people and it's like really brings people out. Like, you know, it brings people out like real material possibilities. I mean, that's what generates sort of interest and attention. And in the absence of those, even if they're foreclosed on in the near term, right? The income tax story is fascinating because basically the the people who were in favor of it, like they tried to do it every single other way and they failed and they failed and they failed and they failed. Mm -hmm. And it took like a really sort of crisis moment, basically took the first world war quite unfortunately Mm. uh, for the movement to succeed. And, you know, that is the you know, I think that's, that's the the project, but seeing it as a sort of professional professionalist thing where, you know, you're fighting for it because you get to put it on your CV and like, <laughs> you know, a couple of years later, like you get to do something else. Like that is not going to be the way anything is won. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. And with COVID, we have such a unique opportunity, right. To, to leverage something like this and to push for something like this and to really forcefully reorient like a lot of the the priorities and policymaking right now. And fundamentally, like that is the goal for the next four years, regardless of who we're pushing against is to, you know, give people not not like professional people, but give individuals as many opportunities, opportunities as possible to like demonstrate their frustration, their civil disobedience and their demand for like real tangible, um, you know, meaningful support and survival. Right. We we have like a very clear need at hand. Right. And the longer we pretend that these like elections are about, you know, keeping people in their jobs as some sort of referendum on normality, like the longer this is going to be a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Should we um, speaking of jobs, should we uh, touch on prop 22 for yeah. a little because so i think this is um yeah. the big i don't know th- this this for me is like the big bummer development of uh the entire thing you know i'm not i'm not surprised by uh this i'm like it for instance like if if assuming uh, biden wins which at this point looks you know pretty likely but who knows like a lot of stuff could happen at this point um assuming biden wins like it'll be a squeaker um probably and that's not surprising to me at all. I'm also not surprising that under the leadership of Nancy Pelosi, they lost house seats. Like mm. we've, we've spent obviously plenty of time talking about how in like how that says it all. How abysmal the Yeah. It is amazing. It's amazing to me already just how, I mean, actually it's not amazing. It's, it's hilarious to me how like 
we can talk about just about like a, a, every other person in politics and you come to Nancy Pelosi and you're just it just uh. rendered completely speechless. <laughs> speechless with rage. Yeah, exactly. How do I I know exactly I know exactly what's happening on your face right now, though I can't see you and, and it's Yeah, I'm like the the like whatever whatever like adjective I'm trying to pull out is not dripping with enough bile like to, <laughs> to, to say. You know what I mean? But um, uh, but like Prop 22, I mean, you know, obviously this was like Lyft and DoorDash's big initiative uh, trying to trying to like uh, mobilize against like changes that the California legislature had made to like basically to like California had tried to essentially make it so that, uh, you know, gig workers um, would actually the like California was the first state really to I think right to mm-hmm. uh, to pass a measure saying that, um, you know, gig workers deserve worker protections right. like trying like to others. force these companies to treat them like actual employees that to acknowledge employees, the actual conditions right. of their employment that which, they were employees not independent contractors right exactly right. um and then and in doing so and during the they spent like 200 million dollars on this and during which some of the way that that money was spent i just want to like highlight this at the beginning and then we can sorry I'll, and they'll leave it mm-hmm. over and we can talk about it but i want to foreground that like yeah. among the ways that they spent this 200 million dollar budget to like uh to to advocate for prop 22 was to if people were ordering like uber eats or doordash mm. or whatever they would uh be sending out uh, to uh, people in California getting like food deliveries or whatever through these uh, app services, they would literally have printed on the bag like Mm -hmm. yes on 22. So you'd be like handed a food bag by someone who is whose like material interests are like completely oppositional to (laughs) this thing being passed that says in fact like Mm -hmm. vote yes on 22. So that, you know. But, but well, as as bad, potentially worse than that, you know, every single time you open their app, right, they had an interstitial that like pops up, uh, you know, before you can before you can access their app saying yes on 22. So Oof. like, you know, at several points along the like, uh, you know, lift delivery you know, like Lyft, Uber Eats delivery chain, you're basically prompted to vote yes on 22. I mean, it's such an important example, actually, because if you just think about this, like, you know, timeline wise, you have California tries to enforce labor protections for gig workers. Right. Uber and other companies threaten to completely pull out of the state. California says, that's fine. We're going to still try and enforce (laughs) this. So... Step two is this Prop 22 push to basically forbid California from doing this. And they dumped a ton of money into it. And lo and behold, Prop 22 passes. And, you know, you had like another thing that I found like the most insulting was that they uh, gave a lot of their like restaurant vendors flyers. Right. And they Mm -hmm. were telling workers like you've got to click this button to confirm that you picked up a flyer from the restaurant to put it in the food order for DoorDash. And DoorDash was, you know, not only making these people deliver stuff that had bags on, but actually making them like physically grab the flyer and report that they had put it in the bag, um, you know, 
the, something yeah. about the like manual labor of having to grab it yourself and put it in the bag before you do your <laughs> delivery is the most insulting thing to me personally. It's it's just so uh, it's so uh, so absurd, you know. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're employees or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but this is but this is I think what's interesting, right? Is this the way that this emerged? Is that you had initially the bill that um, passed in the California Assembly? The initial response that Uber and Lyft and these companies um, were going to make to this bill is they were going to like engage in like capital flight. They like threatened to like leave the state. But then rather than doing that, uh, they engaged in this public campaign uh, to have voters do their work for them. And like, Mm -hmm. I think that's very, very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Because to me, it suggests that first of all, the, the whole capital flight threat Mm -hmm. is always more bullshit than you think it is, oh, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is the, the the sort of problem with the classic, um, you know, uh, sort of structure theory of structural power is that you know sometimes sometimes capital flight is a credible threat for sure, uh, but when you have companies that are technology dependent, the threat that they're going to somehow leave Silicon Valley is just you know <laughs> and be, beyond that bullshit, right? But be, beyond that. Uh, I think it was reported like, you know, during the campaign uh, about these, uh, this initiative that like 15% of Lyft's business just like across the board comes from California because they aren't like Uber that has operations or had operations in other countries. They're really dependent on California for business. It's it's a complete no brainer that that a that a threat like that would ring hollow. And and, you know, like, I, I'm glad that California legislators were just like, this is bullshit. But it's still it's right. Just fucking. But gross. I think but I think the issue, though, right, is that um, and I'm by no means the only person I point this out is that like in the classic theory, uh, the power of firms comes from their ability to withdraw capital investment. And I think what you see here is like, that's actually not necessarily where their real power can be leveraged. Yeah. Their power is leveraged because they provide an infrastructure for doing Mm -hmm. things that people have now, now depend on. So their power doesn't come from their capital. The power comes from their, um, you know, their role in the service, like chain of service provision. And when I was looking at the story, I kept thinking about managed care. Uh, companies and, Mm -hmm. and, and like, you know, back when I think it was like 2013, there was a thing where Congress was going to, um, kind of rationalize some payments for dialysis. Like DeVita basically used its, uh, patient list, Mm -hmm. uh, as a way of kind of mobilizing people to contact their member of Congress, right? Because they have patients in every congressional district in the country. No, but, um, but this is such a classic story, right? And this is so important that you bring it to this, like the, the uh, theory of power problem. Cause this is also a huge, uh, this, this is also, I think is like a huge problem that is like part of a, that it, it, it is an issue that this this like other side of the narrative like does not exist and that other side of the narrative is that like for example for like big money to work or for like these uh for like let's say uh capital flight uh as a as a threat or whatever to to like 
actually work or to change into like whatever the the like process that that company or that you know uh industry lobbying group or whatever actually wants to see happen like what they actually have to do is mobilize like a uh like in the same way that like we can all collectively mobilize Mm -hmm. frankly like um this like you you bring up um davida but uh while you were talking about this i kept um thinking about the the episode that we did um a while ago it's a it's a patron episode uh but i would highly recommend it to people it's called um i think it's called a death panel history of socialized medicine Mm -hmm. um and in it we talk about um this great a uh, paper by Jill Quadagno called uh, "Why the U.S. Has No National Health Insurance," um, which is all about this like theory of power question, basically, mm-hmm. and how various interest groups uh, over the over the course of the 20th century, um, you know, mobilized in various ways, and how basic and you know shows very explicitly how industry groups, you know, the methods and uh, you know disperse dispersal across the country and the numbers. Uh, when they've been successful in lobbying for like pro industry changes have been very similar to the times that like, you know, that other, uh, whether it's like unions or, or just like groups of like concerned senior citizens or whatever have lobbied successfully for healthcare changes. And one of these situations was, for example, like the prop 22 thing just reminds me of, uh, this thing. I'll just read a a quote from this. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, quote the AMA, this is uh, talking about, um, the fight, uh, uh, like a, a fight over uh, fi- a fight in uh, 1950 uh, over over uh, healthcare and a, and a uh, proposal to uh, institute a uh, Truman basically a Truman proposal for like uh, what was called socialized medicine, but it's not it wasn't actually it wouldn't <laughs> not have actually been whatever you know for a national health insurance program. <laughs> um, quote: The AMA also actively entered electoral politics, organizing against Democratic candidates who supported national health insurance. In Pennsylvania, just three weeks before the 1950 election, physicians created a, quote, healing arts committee composed of doctors, nurses, dentists, and office assistants who mailed over 190,000 letters, ran newspaper ads, hung more than 500 posters in doctor's offices, and posted notices in waiting rooms. Physicians also sent personal letters to their patients explaining that there were, quote, evil forces creeping into this country and asking them to vote for Republican candidates. Every time I read this paper, I'm always like, Jesus fucking Christ. But it's the same. So many good ideas. Well, but but this is the thing. Like we can't have this, we can't have this understanding and this other theory of power mm-hmm. absent. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, we can't right. ever forget this because exactly. this is the same story over and over again. And in the case of prop 22, because we haven't talked about some of the like bullshit that it, it does yet. And maybe we don't have to get too into it. But in the case of prop 22, it is so absurd. It includes a provision that in order to be repealed, mm-hmm. prop 22 needs a seven eighths vote. <laughs> in the legislature in the state legislature which is like you know not impossible to like remove obviously but like that is it's it's basically saying like okay this is in and there's no there's like functionally no uh no like check on this Mm -hmm. in like within the state like this this is now the this is like this is in or whatever unless the people run like another proposition or something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And which is why 
uh, things like Proposition 13, which caps property taxes in California at very, very low rates Mm -hmm. um, compared to real value of property is still in place and will (laughs) probably never be repealed. Mm -hmm. Woo. (laughs) (laughs) Before we finish, just before we finish on Prop 22, I think it's important to mention a couple of the things like materially that it does, especially because there's uh, there's some like extreme absurdity um in them like this is obviously a bad uh this is obvious very obviously a bad thing but it's also just like so hilariously Mm open-ended um basically you know one of the things that it does uh you know as a lot of people have pointed out the the stuff about how basically the 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 benchmark that it sets for how you're determined to be like the amount of hours uh which are only you know hours when you're actually like doing like when you're in app work not when you're just like i've you know, logged on and waiting for deliveries or whatever. So uh, if you're up. just sitting and waiting for delivery, it doesn't like count towards this time, but when you're doing delivery, so it's like, you know, a tiny fraction of the amount of time, even people who, so basically, you know, people who work like full time doing, uh, like Uber Lyft, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Postmates, whatever, mm-hmm. um, will basically not, you know, qualify under this as, um, like, at, you know, as a employee, um, though it does, you know, it does set a benchmark of hours by which you could, uh, but you would basically have to overwork yourself to, to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, among other things, uh, UC Berkeley Labor Center um, study basically found that for most people, it'll effectively make uh, the gig worker uh, like hourly rate uh, 564 an hour. Uh, on top of that, um, there's there's this whole provision about so for those people who do again you know go uh like work themselves to the the point that they actually get the hours to qualify as an employee Mm -hmm. um it has stipulations for uh for health insurance uh coverage Mm -hmm. um that health insurance coverage is not actually coverage that health insurance uh is for uh quote-unquote qualified plans no idea what that means. There's no specification for qualifying plans. Um, the uh, like a gig worker uh, can become eligible for uh, a subsidy amounting to 82% of the average California covered premium uh, every month. So that's, you know, a, again, fractional. And that basically means that, you know, you have to there, like you can imagine all of the various stages of like, if you imagine it's essentially like, well, you have to like basically, you know, buy an ACA plan or whatever. And there are all these hoops with that. There's the, there's the, like, uh, there's the income cliff, for mm-hmm. example, uh, whereby suddenly, you know, you're, you're, you have like a subsidy, a subsidy, a subsidy, and then you like make just like a dollar over or something. And then all of a sudden like no subsidy and, and like huge premium. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only is like that system fundamentally flawed, but then you have to like, on top of that, they're going to what, like watch how many hours you have, figure that out and then do the subsidy. Is that retroactive? Is that before like there's, and there's no specification. This is all stuff that was like, this will have to be ironed out after it's, past or well, and when so you now, make the barrier right. for qualifying for that so high you might never really have to iron it out meaningfully right um <laughs> and then just the other thing is like the and same thing for uh like for uh disability insurance essentially yeah. um but like not exact same thing because uh, there's no nothing about it, like a subsidy but it's basically like very few details um and a paltry plan that's capped at like 104 weeks um so it's like significantly worse than 
uh, other existing labor protection protections in the state. I just wanted to like put like put that out there. Yeah, um, and and I think you know delivery for delivery in particular right now, like not only in the context of the pandemic, but just like you know in the context of like how underinsured people are, you need the ability to be able to like claim workman's comp. And I, I'm pretty sure that right now, um, as it stands, Prop 22 is going to prevent people still from being able to basically file workman workman's comp claims against um, like Uber and Lyft and, and DoorDash mm-hmm. for their, you know, if they like become sick on the job. Yeah. I mean, so like the bottom line is, you know, this, I feel like the experience of, of, uh, you know, election night, you know, this year was, was, was really different for me because it didn't necessarily feel like, I think in 2016, everyone was truly, there was a level of like surprise and anxiety and sort of a dismal sense about things that, uh, people had now, you know, I, I guess that for a lot of people, perhaps indicated by the fact that the calm app was the prime sponsor <laughs> for uh coverage. Oh, uh, was it on CNN or yeah. MSNBC? The calm was app on, was like, the yeah, ma- I think it was CNN. I was like, that is, that is the, the chocolate Ad- laxative. Admittedly, that probably has as much to do with Wolf Blitzer's voice as anything else, but still. <laughs> yeah. But the, um, yeah, I guess so. But the, <laughs> but I think like there was a level of anxiety to me that is completely the result of the fact that the way that we rely on people to interpret all of these things for us, you know, people have the, I don't know, the major networks, the cable channels, uh, they've all figured out a way to, uh, profit from anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. And to just like profit from this sense about politics in which politics is mainly something to be awaited, to be worried about and to be predicted in a sort of like, uh, sports book, uh, kind of sense. Everything and is ESPN. It's all ESPN. Coverage. And so there's going to be, I think the one thing that I'm going to be like watching for is like the, the recriminations about polling. Mm-hmm. I mean, like poll, polling is resilient it's resilient, not because it is something anybody should trust, but it is resilient because its primary audience isn't us, but it is people in financial markets um, (laughs) who are trying to find some way about like reducing uncertainty. But I think the one thing that like, I don't know, I'm just hoping that in, in the sort of, in the punishment and the, the, the trial of, uh, and Nate Silver and his ilk is that like, it's like, you know, no, no, no. It doesn't matter whether or not your confidence interval was like wrong. It matters whether or not people believe that what politics should be about is like listening to you or watching right. you, uh, or like waiting on awaiting on like predictions. And that's the thing that annoys me now is just that like, because this is drawn out a, a few days or whatever, it's not a big deal, but it just creates this sense that like, no, 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 we, we still have to rely on these interlocutors to make sense of, uh, how we should understand uh, politics, which is, you know, I think incredibly wrong uh, and, yeah. and, and debilitating for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately, right. It just, it, it's just like another way that, that the system disincentivizes people from like taking like action in their communities and like to, to create like political movements that they, that they want and that will like benefit them and, and the working class. 
I mean, for me, I feel like the most telling thing in the next couple of months is going to be like how strongly we can um, sort of like culturally resist the uh, like the temptation to just like wallow in, in nostalgia and rehashing the past like year because ultimately and not we <laughs> I mean. I mean, uh, we like, uh, like we with a capital W, like we, I know. we yeah. the people or whatever, um, God. pod save the we, you know what I mean? <laughs> Cause I think ultimately in this, the, like all of these sort of like romanticized, uh, portrayals of this, this process that we've just been through, like feed into not only like sort of a, a, a sense of like. I don't know, like freezing in time of like ideology, but it also is like part of this uh, nostalgic, problematic tendency that we have, right? Where it's sort of like, as as we were saying at the top of the episode, like, you know, uh, Hillbilly Elegy would not have been written under different circumstances in 2016. Yeah, and, well, and that's obviously the game that people are, uh, that like the Biden uh campaign is going to be going for like full stop. I mean, it's already actually going for full stop. Um, mm-hmm. if you watched like the, the comments that they made yesterday, it was very clear that they're having him, uh, pivot very directly to what I think will be, um, the prevailing narrative, basically the, like the moment if he is elected, the moment that, uh, he is like getting ready to take office, which is just like, Oh, great. Look, uh, we, we did it. We weathered these hard times as Americans. Now we can get back to like working together and making, <laughs> you know, ma- making lowering uh, the deficit, making progress uh, happen, building slowly. progress back best. Um, and basically the, you know, doing the like, what is it that Obama was saying on the campaign trail? Like, wouldn't it be great to have a president you don't have to think about every day? Like, mm-hmm. that's what that's the demobilization that like they're. They have to be banking on, basically, yeah, which is so fucked because, again, if you think about the way that even, you know, to to go back to the, like, uh, the total discounting of uh, Trump as, like, simply a joke or whatever electorally, Mm -hmm. you know, think about how he spent the last four years completely keeping the base mobilized, mobilizing more people. Like, that is in, you know, not the specific way that he did it, but that sentiment is how you fucking do politics, basically. Mm -hmm. And to see, you know, I'll just, I know that this has been shared around, uh, a lot and already made fun of extensively, uh, like including even in the, like the death panel, uh, discord server, but like, you know, the, 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 the closing argument of the, of the like potential win, uh, for Joe Biden is, is like this tweet basically from, from yesterday, to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as enemies. <laughs> we are not enemies. Like, yeah, Joe Biden is an enemies with his opponents. Yeah, That's, Joe Biden yeah. is an enemies with them, but we're enemies with him. I'm sure right. that Mitch McConnell <laughs> right. harbors the same sentiment. Well, folks, yeah, I hope you join us in not going quietly into these next four years um, and not staying quiet, I guess, right? <laughs> and not going anxiously either. I mean, right. anxiety around these things doesn't... Uh, doesn't help you. I mean, like tuning in to simply have the, uh, anxiety level raised is of no use. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah. And is in yeah. fact clinically considered self-harm. Frankly, I'm more suspicious of you if you're relieved, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we are the number one anti-cortisol podcast that is not an <laughs> ASMR sleep companion in the United States. So, 
Sure. Are you doing a com? Are you doing a com.com ad? No, I'm I'm challenging the market hegemony of com style apps for relaxation and saying sometimes <laughs> this, you know, kind of discussion can also be relaxing and energizing and I I hear a lot of people who say they like to go, you know, fall asleep to us and then, you know. Yeah, toss restlessly. Uh, and then they hear Vince say good evening. <laughs> Well, one one thing that we're not going to get to, uh, but if I'll just say if a listener out there has a copy of this or something, because like I can't uh, I can't find it. But uh, one thing we won't get into, there's that viral video going around of Trump's spiritual advisor, uh, you know, pre- like preaching for the don't even remember what she said. It's just a bunch for of like non- nonsense the, about like uh, stuff. angels from Africa to come. And deliver and the vote to deliver the Mr. Vote. Trump. Yeah. And they, yeah. I just want to, I just, I, I think do. she also said like the Latin angels a lot. So we, we don't have time. We, we won't be getting into this, but <laughs> I must simply point out that in 2008, um, that woman whose name is Paula White in 2008, <laughs> uh, that woman wrote a book called the 10 commandments of health and wellness. <gasps> oh so. yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Is that, uh, Available on Amazon or it's available to, in stone to stone. Yeah. <laughs> you had to be there. Yeah. You had to, you had to be there to have the sermon <laughs> delivered upon you. Uh, and you know, I don't think it, yeah, it's not in print anymore. So whatever. Yeah, it's, oh. uh, there's, if you go to the top of a mountain, uh, somewhere in an undisclosed lo- location in Mike Pence's backyard in Indiana, um, <laughs> and you get to the top of that mountain, then you can read the book. Oh my God. That, is like the holy grail of patron episodes for us. Just saying. Mountains in Indiana, huh? Hi. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway. You know, Moses went to the top. I, you know, metaphorical mountain. It's a small mound. It's a mountain for ants, Artie. I went to the top of the field. <laughs> it's a mountain for ants. I just went like up the mountain. Uh, Moses, wasn't that a, just in point of fact, wasn't that a mound? I'm not a big, I'm, I'm I'm not a big hiker. It's not fine. Really that big, but like. Perhaps a sermon, a sermon from a mount? Is that what you meant? <laughs> Uh, anyway, he climbed to the top well, of the podium. All, all right, all right, all right. Um, mountain or mountaintop aside, uh, <laughs> let's call it a day, listeners. Thank you, as always. Please consider supporting the show. Patreon.com/slash Death Panel Pod. You get access to the bonus episode, and it you know helps us continue this project. With that, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Hell yeah.
stay alive another week. Yep. See you on uh, Monday in the Patreon episode when I'm sure there will be many developments to talk about. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll uh, we'll maybe we'll get into the Bernie would have won discourse on Monday. Perhaps. That's a special special <laughs> little carrot out there to support the show. Become a patron. Only for yeah, only for patrons. We're not going to share our hot takes on the Bernie would have won. If uh, our patronage numbers increase right between now and Sunday night, then <laughs> Bernie would have won is on the docket. It's on the outline for Monday. It's yeah. up to you, folks. Be the change you want to see in the world. I promise we can deliver. That's right. We will listen <laughs> be, to the voters. Be, this, yeah, be the can, bitter takes that you want mind. to see us regurgitate. We are I the world. I will not be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we're just like holding holding people hostage or incentivizing. Oh, I'm for serious. So. Yeah, I don't want that on main feed. Word. Yeah. All right. All right, y'all. Until next time, I'll say it again. Solidarity forever. Bye. 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 All right.